This is a podcast for curious readers. Heyo, podcast people. Welcome back to another episode of Book Pros. I am sitting right now out in like the back room of my house and the windows are open and you can probably hear the birds. You can probably hear the trucks too that are driving up and down the road, but mostly the birds, which is lovely. So you might hear that in the background here in the intro, um, but you know, deal with it. It's a nice day. (laughs) On today's episode, we have author and historian Buzzy Jackson. Her new book, To Die Beautiful, came out May 2nd. Um, I'm so excited to share this with you. It is such a good book. It is historical fiction feature featuring uh, World War II time period, um, but it takes a different look at World War II. So this sp- story specifically happens in the Netherlands um, during the German invasion, like as the Germans kind of came into the Netherlands and um, what happened afterwards. It is centered around the character of Hanni Schaft and she um, is a heroic figure in the Netherlands during World War II. And I don't want to give too much away, but um, she's basically a badass and this book was so awesome. And like I say in the episode, when I finished it, and it's rare for me to finish a historical fiction book and specifically a um, World War II historical fiction book just because they're, you know, very depressing <laughs> for very many reasons. Um, but I, when I finished this one, I honestly, I felt like inspired. I was like, okay, like, let's go, let's do this. Um, and I hope those of you who read it feel the same way. And I hope you love this conversation that I had with Buzzy Jackson. She is awesome. She was so generous with her time. She was so kind with um, answering my questions. And so I hope you guys really enjoy it and stay tuned in the middle of the episode. We'll do, we'll do an update on store events. With me today is Buzzy Jackson. She is the award-winning author of three books of nonfiction. She has a PhD in history from UC Berkeley, and she is a recent fellow at the Edith Wharton Writing Residency. She's also a member of the National Book Critics Circle and writes for the Boston Globe and Book Forum. Her newest book, To Die Beautiful, came out May 2nd. Please join me in welcoming Buzzy Jackson. Southeast, South Central, right like an hour outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Well, thanks so much yeah. for your interest. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you. I I love, I've always really been drawn to World War II history, and I know I'm not alone in that, but it, it's- Oh, uh, cool. I go through, like, uh, I'll read a bunch, and then I, like, have to yeah. let it go for a while, and then I oh, read- Oh, I get that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I get that. I definitely, I also, you know, review books from time to time, and mm-hmm. I've, re- I've reviewed, you know, Holocaust books, and yeah. whenever I do- I need to, I can only do one, like every, maybe like one a year, you know what I mean? Just because it's so (laughs) intense. It's so heavy. Yeah, it really is. And then to find myself writing about it, um, even though I'm not writing about a concentration camp, you know, it's like, nobody was more surprised than me. So (laughs) yeah, because this is your first, this is your first foray into fiction. Like you've written other nonfiction. um, Right but this is your first fiction. And I have to say, like, yeah. well, well done. If this is your first. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I actually have a, an essay up on Lit Hub today about deciding to write it, um, you know, as, as fiction, but I, you also have a question about that. So we can just go into your questions <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I usually just like to start with, um, if you wouldn't mind just telling us about the story, I know it, it opened yeah. in the fall of 1940. And I think most people 
like when I describe this to like the book to my coworkers or to friends mm-hmm. that I who asked me what I'm reading, I was saying, well, you know Anne Frank, <laughs> you know the <laughs> right. Anne Frank story. So it's happening in and around all of that. So it, it yes. includes all of that kind of, but that's kind of where we are and when we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, tell us the rest, tell us about the story just to set the stage. Sure, yeah, it does start in um, 1940, which was um, the year that the Germans invaded um, the Netherlands. And the Netherlands, you know, were neutral, just like they had been in World War One, um, because they're so tiny, you know, and they don't really have yeah. much of a military. Um, but they thought they'd be able to stay neutral just as they had in the first world war, but that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that didn't, they thought they'd be protected anyway. And um, they were not, they were occupied by Nazi Germany. And so the book opens with um, Hani Schacht, who's at that point, um, she's 19, uh, about to turn 20, and she's a law student in Amsterdam. And she's, you know, kind of a studious girl who spent her childhood preparing to go to law school, preparing to become a lawyer for the League of Nations. Uh, That was really her goal, was to work in what we would now call human rights uh, Mm -hmm. law. And um, unfortunately, the League of Nations collapsed right before its world, right in 1939, um, because it had failed to do what it set out to, which was prevent war. So um, that was a big blow, I think, to Mm -hmm. her. And at this point, she's still in law school and just, um, you know, like everyone else in the Netherlands, waiting to see what's going to happen next now that the Germans are there. Um, And uh, at this at the start, she has never really been involved in political activism, per se, although she has a strong sense of justice. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's not a kid who grew up, you know, attending strikes or doing anything like that. Right. She has a or she had a sister who passed away prior to the what happens in the story that affects right. her greatly. Um, yeah. But she's constantly comparing herself to her sister saying like her, yeah. her sister would have been better at this. And my sister would have been, you know, but um, she, yeah, she kind of takes on some, some of that. She changes hugely throughout the story. And I, I love, yeah. I love her, her, not to say arc because it's a yeah. real life story. <laughs> it's an arc <laughs> but, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's so, and that's one of the things that I think you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later too, but mm-hmm. I found so great about this story is it's rare to walk away from a world war ii novel feeling Mm. like fight like inspired (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad (laughs) to hear that yeah 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 um but yeah so i i yeah i loved this story and i think i i have and i don't know if i'm just making this up in my own memory but i feel like i've heard of her like in all my other reading like other readings i feel like i've heard her name before Mm -hmm. um and heard stories of her but Mm. this was the first actual like story of her life that I've ever right. run into. Yeah. You know, I, when I first started working on the book, which was seven years ago um, in 2016, I, I had never heard of her, but I will say that in the years since then, um, I think her reputation is starting to spread a little bit um, beyond the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of the women she worked with in the resistance, the sisters Truce and Freddie Overstegen, they both um, they both died in recent years and their obituaries really garnered a lot of mm-hmm. attention to the story, you know, and their story is really intertwined with Hani's. So I think that also contributed to uh, sort of a, you know, rising awareness. But the fact that there wasn't really a 
book about her, mm -hmm. especially in English, um, was shocking to me when yeah. I first discovered who she was. And um, that was what kind of gave me the impetus to to write it, basically, because I thought this is crazy. Like this woman is like, I mean, I believe she's really one of the great unsung heroes of World War Two, mm -hmm. certainly of Dutch, you know, fighters in World War Two. And um and yeah, I felt like it, her story just had to be told. So I really hope that, that my book is just the start of a hopefully broader reputation, you know, salvaging yeah. for Hani Shaft. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me, you said jumping into this, you yeah. started thinking about it back in 2016. So mm -hmm. tell me about that. Cause I feel like we've, we've all been through a lot. <laughs> oh boy. Have Since we? 2016. Yeah. So yeah. What, what about that time was so pivotal for you? Because I've, yeah, I'll finish that yeah. question later. But tell me first, what was so pivotal about that time that made you do this? <laughs> sure, no problem. Um, yeah, I uh, I was fortunate to go on vacation to Amsterdam where I have some friends and family, not Dutch family, but just extended family. I don't, I'm not Dutch myself. I don't have Dutch heritage, but went to Amsterdam um, around Christmas of 2016. And um, as you recall, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> a bunch of things had happened in the world around then. Mm -hmm. um, Trump had just been elected in the United States and Brexit had just happened yep. uh, in the UK. And both of those things um, were totally shocking to me. I did not expect either of those things to actually mm -hmm. transpire. And I was uh, personally very disheartened by both of those events. Yeah. And as a historian, you know, I when you're living through events that you know are big historical events, it's sort of like you feel like your own historical background should help you have some perspective on what's happening. And yet I was just as shocked as anybody, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling like, um, wow, something really serious and potentially um, to me, scary was happening mm -hmm. in the world. Um, you know, it should. I, uh, I, I think it's worth pointing out that Brexit. Um, you know, the EU was essentially another another type of peace initiative, just like the League of Nations, right. just like the United Nations. It was formed after World War II to bring all of these nations in Europe together, so to right. prevent. So the idea that a member, especially Great Britain, would especially voluntarily Britain. leave, mm -hmm. yeah, was so, uh, it was really scary to me, yeah. you know, and then a lot of the things that Trump was saying were really scary to me, too, because they, um, they really ring of kind of classic um, totalitarianism, like that mm -hmm. kind of um, I alone can fix it kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and so when I found the story of Honey Shaft in the Resistance Museum in, in Amsterdam, uh, I was really blown away because here was this young woman who had sort of been in a similar position where everything in her world changed. And she was kind of sitting there waiting to waiting to see how bad it would get, you know, in a sense. Yeah. And I found her story really inspiring. And so I just thought I went to the bookstore and to get to get a biography of her. And then I couldn't find one. And there have been books written about her in Dutch, yeah. but not uh, at the time. There hadn't been any in the last like few decades. And so I was so I thought, well, at least this will give me something to work on during the Trump administration, <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and it turned out the pandemic. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, I don't want to say it's comforting to hear you say all that. Cause when you bring it all back <laughs> up, I think, I think of yeah. those, I think of those days I had, I had, I had some good shower cries in those oh, yeah. the fall of 2016. Just that same feeling of being like, I can't believe, I can't believe yeah. that, that, uh, a, a big enough section of us mm-hmm. think this is a good idea. Like it, yeah. it was so strange, <laughs> but so it's a little bit comforting to hear you say that as a historian, because I had a lot yeah. of those same, and I still feel a lot of those same things. And sometimes I have to wonder like, am I, am I t- reading too much into all this or whatever? But, um, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it, it is, it's, it's very strange. I, um, in 2016, I started, I was like, all right, I, my thing was I cried in the shower and then I, I, went to our, our bookstore and I ordered a book that I work at or, or the bookstore I work at. And I ordered a book called Weimar Germany. Oh it's, yes. It's about yeah. the years leading up to right. what, what after world war one, mm-hmm. pre-world war two, what mm-hmm. brought about all of that. Like, and it's, yeah. I mean, honestly, I could have, you could just make like a, a parallel spreadsheet of like, yep, this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And so I know. it freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, it really freaked me out too. I mean, one of the first books I read as part of my research, um, sorry, there's a very loud plane going over here. Um, as part of my research for the book, um, one of the first ones I read was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is, you know, just a classic uh, history of Nazi Germany. Right. And it's about, you know, a thousand pages long. I'm looking over it to my bookshelf is somewhere over there. Um, and the same thing, because it starts with yeah. the rise of Adolf Hitler as like a struggling painter, you know, right. in Austria and watching all the steps that Austria and Germany go through to get to that point. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I mean, you just see, oh, that milestone, that yeah. milestone that people didn't think it was real. Oh, then mm-hmm. they burned the Reichstag. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, it just goes on and on. So yeah, it was shocking to me. And I definitely had times, I will say, in the research and writing of this book where I got really depressed, you know, not yeah. not by my book, but by the parallels I was seeing. But of course, those also made me feel like, well, it's worth writing this, you know? Yeah. And that is how it felt reading it. it when oh, you're good. reading it, it feels like, it feels so... <laughs> for better or worse, relevant. And I, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it is a good yeah. thing, but it's also kind of like, I wish it wasn't. But um... I know I had the same thought because actually when I started, I thought, you know, this, I wish I could publish this book today in 2017. And I hope it will still yeah. be, I sort of hope it'll still be relevant, you know, when I, when it ever comes out. And sadly, and yes, unfortunately, it is. <laughs> yeah, but fortunately and unfortunately, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Uh, this is a good place. If you don't mind, um, I think this is a good place because this, this beginning of this, of chapter five stuck out yeah. to me because it just sent like chills almost Yeah, down my spine. Um, and I, it's not even like a real integral, it's not like a real pivotal moment. It's just mm-hmm. that moment where it's like when you, when a person has that, um, realization for themselves of like. I'm going to have to make a choice. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. It's like a scene setting, you know, yeah. in a sense. And, um, I, you know, that was one of the things I strove to do throughout the book is to not only try and, you know, imagine how it must have felt to be there, but also to imagine, you know, we look back on World War II and we know that it ends in 1945. Right. None of these people knew that they mm-hmm. didn't know if they'd be in the war for 10 more years, you know, yeah. um, or six more months, I, you know, who knows. So I, I did try to occasionally step back and look at sort of a bigger picture of what life was like at that time. 
Um, and this chapter, as you say, chapter five starts in um, around the spring and summer of 1942. And uh, what's happened just before, just at the end of the previous chapter is that Connie Schaft has went, she's not in the resistance. She's just a student, but she walks into Dom, the Dom Square, which is like the major plaza of Amsterdam, still there. And um, there's a big clock that's still there in the main square. And she had just witnessed the German soldiers uh, changing the clock's hands so that they match Berlin time mm -hmm. rather than Amsterdam time. And that is something that really happened. And I thought just an incredible metaphor for mm -hmm. the control that they were trying yes. to, you know, starting to exert over the society. So mm -hmm. it starts, the next chapter starts, I felt the clock's presence everywhere as if the Nazis controlled the weather too. Everyone had to change their clocks to Berlin time if they wanted to synchronize with the train schedules. For a while, I refused to change mine and a small pearl of resentment began to grow in me, a hard new layer forming each time I recalibrated my schedule with Berlin. How does evil spread? Like a disease from one human to another? Or the way the new anti-Jewish measures sifted down into the private lives of Dutchmen like dust in a closed room, moat by invisible moat, until one day we turned the key in the lock and found ourselves trapped, then looked back at our little room and discovered it so entombed in filth it was not fit to live in anymore. The, the imposition of Berlin time awakened me to a new truth. We were not awaiting a tragedy, we were living it. Each time I looked at the alarm by my bedside and took the extra step of adjusting the clock, I felt that bitter pearl grow. Now, when I walked through the city, yellow stars screamed at me from street corners, do something. Yeah, it sent yeah. chills up my spine. <laughs> yeah, and the yellow stars, you know, mm -hmm. and what one of the things she's sort of referencing here is that, um, you know, when the Nazis uh, invaded Austria, they famously perpetrated Kristallnacht, you know, and, and very violently and uh, obviously sort of destroyed mm -hmm. Jewish businesses and homes and that kind of thing. In the Netherlands, it was really different because they wanted to preserve a sense of society staying whole, um, because the Germans felt that the Dutch were um, sort of like their little sibling who could become Germans, you know, that right. they were Germanic enough, Aryan enough to do this. And so they did, they came in a lot more quietly and subtly in the Netherlands. Yeah. That was really something interesting to me that I hadn't known about. And that was, you know, part of the design of that was to keep the population um, kind of Docile. Uh, <laughs> docile, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they weren't too suspicious of what was happening. And right. that changing the clock was a big sign uh, for everybody. I think that like things are changing. Yeah. I, it just, yeah, like I said, it sent chills up my spine and it made me think and talking to a, a real life historian, which I don't talk to many real life historians, but I feel <laughs> like, you know, I look back on, on, yeah, I think about all the stuff that's going on now with education. My husband's a teacher. A lot yeah. of us at the bookstore are former teachers. Yeah. I taught I taught language arts and I look at things now and I think the way that we are taught or and maybe sometimes even not taught about our own history. Um yeah. our own national history, global history, or yeah. the way we're not taught about it, I guess, and who gets to write it <laughs> is are oh, huge yeah. questions that we're arguing about constantly now. Um yeah. But I, I was so struck by the, how the small little kind of things that would annoy you on a day-to-day -day basis, but not be so disruptive that the majority of the population would go, oh, wait a minute, 
Like, right. this is not okay. The, right. the Nazis did, the Germans did such a good job of, yeah. of making those quiet steps that we can mm-hmm. do this. We'll push it just this much farther. Right. Um, and I think we, because we don't teach a lot of those kinds of things throughout history, both, you know, you can think back to civil war and reconstruction and all of right. them and leading into the Jim Crow, like, good Lord. I mean, we, yeah. there's so much we, we should learn and be taught about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, what did you specific to this like part chapter, what did you learn when mm-hmm. you were researching that you felt uh, in addition to the clock part? Cause I didn't know that either. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the part about how quietly they came into the Netherlands mm-hmm. compared to, yeah, compared to, and I also think we have the benefit of looking back. I think the way we're taught specifically this per- time period of history, mm-hmm. um, it's such a foregone conclusion. It was yeah. like, and the good guys won. And obviously yeah. they were going to. And obviously <laughs> we were never going to let any of this right. ha- really happen and get worse. Sure. But like, of course we were. Yeah. And America didn't, like, if if many Americans had their way, we wouldn't have entered the war at all. So like, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's just, it, it's nuts to me. Anyway, so the question is, <laughs> yeah. what did you learn about yeah. this that you think like more people should know this? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I agree with everything you just said. And um, I do think that, you know, these, this sort of slow introduction of anti-Semitic policies and also mm-hmm. of course, like anti-homosexual uh, policies, anti uh you know, as they were called, then gypsy policies, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, as these things were introduced very slowly, uh, for example, um, a curfew for Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was easy for even for some Jews to rationalize that as, mm-hmm. well, they're doing it for our safety, you right. know. And it's like the metaphor of the frog in boiling water, you know, that mm-hmm. it's like by the time it's boiling, it's too late to, to do anything. I, I, um, you know, the, some of the specific things that they did were in the beginning were, yes, a curfew for Jews, then Jews were ordered to register with the state. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about the Netherlands was that almost everybody already was registered with the state. There was a very kind of strong bureaucratic uh, presence in the Netherlands. And so, um, but but people hadn't registered as Jews because right. Jews in the Netherlands had been very, it was one of the best places to be Jewish in Western Europe for centuries by then. Um, they, most of the people that are the real people portrayed in this book, Jewish people um, were definitely not Orthodox Jews. They didn't consider themselves different from other Dutch people, from their fellow Christian Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very well integrated place. And so, uh, you know, when they're, uh, bicycles began being taken away by all the Jew- from all the Jews when Jews were no longer allowed to own businesses or um, attend school. You know these things happen mm-hmm. slowly, and even in the Diary of Anne Frank, she chronicles this too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that this like sl- like oh, it seems kind of like the walls are closing in, but it, to me it really brought up uh, sort of the classic question that, you know, I'm Jewish and my ancestors came from Russia in a similar situation in the sense that they fled the Russian anti-Semitic pogroms of mm-hmm. the early 20th century and fortunately got out and, you know, came to the United States and survived. But the question I think so many American Jewish people have in this big diaspora is, how do you know when it's time to go? 
Right. You know, mm-hmm. like how will you know? And sort of for us, even, you know, if you're not Jewish, just like any average, let's say American citizen, how do I know when things have gotten so bad or so wrong that I need to actually change my life somehow and right. take a seat this? You know what I mean? And that to me is like uh, maybe the most relevant part of this book is that, you know, history is contingent and it's changing all the time. And we should constantly be asking ourselves questions like this. Yeah. You know, the, the answer is personal every time, but still, it's a good question to ask. Right. All right. Time for some store events. Starting this Friday, second Friday, May 12th, we have seven authors from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators coming to our shop to sign their books from 6 to 8 p.m. Authors that are coming are Sandy Asher, Hilda Eunice Burgos, L.E. Delano, Carl Harris Schumann, Judy Schachner, Lindsay K. Bandy, and Donna Jo Napoli. So come out for Second Friday. It's going to be a beautiful week, it looks like. So stop in, meet some authors and illustrators, and enjoy the night. All right, Thursday, May 18th is our monthly game night from 6 to 9 p.m. This is a free event. We do ask you RSVP on our website. There is an Eventbrite little thing you can sign up for. And bonus, 10% off games purchased that night. So if you come and play the games that we're, that we're demoing, uh, you, you also get 10% off any games that you purchase that night. Monday, May 22nd is our Intro to Tarot Part 2. Um, starts at 6 p.m. This is a small group class that will guide you through more intricacies of the tarot and dive into more complex spreads to get you confidently reading for any scenario. You must have either attended the Intro to Tarot class or be uh, familiar with the Major Arcana and Simple Readings. This class does cost $25 a person. Uh, It includes a copy of How to Learn Tarot by Jess Carlson, and you can register on our website for that as well. Tuesday, May 23rd from 6 to 9 p.m. is our Tarot Tuesdays. So this is different than the Intro to Tarot Part 2 or Part 1. This is Tarot Tuesdays. This is a discussion and social gathering, and it's open to anyone who's currently practicing, uh, is a currently practicing reader um, of all experience levels, and you can sign up on our website for that as well. Those are some of the events we have going on this week. You can always stop into the shop to find out more. Check our website and our Instagram at Aaron's Books. All right, now back to my conversation with Buzzy. And and I think you, you hear that too. You hear people talking about the World War II and the Holocaust, and a lot of people will say, like, you know, why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they yeah. just why didn't they just get out when people when it started yeah. to get bad? And I just think, like, well, yeah, you, you what are you supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, I think the real question too is like, well, why did it get bad enough that they had to leave? Like all yeah. the other people around, and I think yeah. that's what your book does so well. Mm. It's not a, I mean, it there are Jewish characters in it, and it, yeah. it is about that. Yeah. But it's so much more so about their neighbors. Yeah who were just there and these new rules didn't necessarily affect them at all, but they affected right. their friends, their classmates, their right. co-workers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like how, how many people had to stay so quiet for so long mm-hmm. for all of that to happen as it did. And I yeah. think we're living in that t- kind of time now as well. I think but- we are too. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, you know, um, I do mention this in the, in, I think the historic, 
the afterward to the book or the forward or somewhere in it. But, you know, there, um, there were some moments when the Dutch people, non-Jewish, mm-hmm. really did rise up to protest these things. And in fact, there was a strike, I believe it was in 1943, um, that was a general strike that was called by the Communist Party of the Netherlands. And hundreds of thousands of Dutch people refused to go to work. The tram stopped running, shut down the city of Amsterdam for mm-hmm. several days. And it really is, it is actually the only um the only mass protest against the Nazis during World War II that was organized by non-Jews. And that's pretty Uh, moving and pretty special. And I really think the Dutch people deserve a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was so violently struck down that um, it was really hard for people to mobilize after it, afterwards. Yeah, Yeah. And it resulted in a lot of bad consequences for Jewish people. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things too, reading through reading through the the story, you have the the resistance group, the Dutch people trying to fight against what the Nazis are doing. Um yeah. and as they do it, the Nazis, of course, are retaliating yeah. by by hurting Killing innocent everybody, people. Really, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. Um and, and that's one thing on there's at one point Hani says she's talking to um She's talking. She's talking to one of the girls. No, she's not talking mm-hmm. to one of the Ober. She's not talking to the sisters. Um, she's probably talking to Filene, I think. Or, uh huh. Anyway, she says to them, um, you know, what are we supposed to do? She said they want you to disappear. They want you to right. disappear. So your job is to not disappear, and it's my right. job to help you do that. And right. that that conversation back and forth, I thought, yeah, like that's yes, mm-hmm. that's what we're supposed to do. We live where I live in Lancaster City, which is like the yeah. closest city. They're um. They've been certified as a, a, wel- a refugee, a national refugee capital. Oh, great. They've taken a lot of refugees around here. Um, yeah. And I think I live in a really great place for that. And of course, there's pushback here and like here too, sure. but it's very nice. We live in a, in a place that is more welcoming. And I think yeah. um, this, it made me think about that. There's, I, you have said, I think I read on your, um, on one of the, your, things about your book in in Mm -hmm. the letter that you wrote. You said you learned from Hani that refugee crises are the first warning signs of rising authoritarianism and political extremism. And I had never thought about that. Yeah. Maybe that's me either. either. No, I mean, that's why I said I learned about it writing this book. It was like, ding, you know, a light went off because in, you know, as I was continuing to research the book, and it was as the Trump presidency was, you know, starting, and, uh, you know, not to about a year into it, or whenever that happened, um, you know, suddenly, the United States was holding, uh, was locking families in cages right. on the border of Mexico and separating families. And that was so shocking to so many of us Americans. Um, and I have to say, I was um, kind of ashamed of myself writing the book while this was happening in my own country to the extent that I actually ended up doing one of those like Facebook, uh, you know, a Facebook fundraiser, mm-hmm. started this group called um, 
it was the worst acronym in the world, STEB, S-T-E-B, that was just called Stop This Evil Bullshit. And it was like, <laughs> we a few thousand dollars. And I live in Colorado. So I drove about, you know, the Mexican border is about eight hours from me. And mm-hmm. I drove down there and actually joined in some of those protests on the border because I just felt like I have yeah. to do something. It's as small as it is. And I really felt like I would be such a hypocrite if I didn't try to do something as I was writing this book about Hani Shop. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yes. So that's actually a cause that I've stayed involved with as a volunteer, you know, that not Steb, but, you know, more <laughs> organized group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I it was it was really stunning to me. And, and we see refugee crises all over the world, of course, right. now they keep going on. And um I I think it, they all sort of say the same thing. It's like the canary yeah. in the coal mine, like something bad is happening somewhere and these people need our help and they're coming here because they share our values. Right. So we need to help them. You know, it's our human duty to help them and it's in our best interest to help mm-hmm. them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was a big lesson for me as well. Yeah. And I think you're, I think this book does such a good job pointing out not even the big, big moments of resistance. Mm. It's not even like going to the protest. It's not even like, it's the tiniest little thing. It's yeah. It's just making it that much harder for Mm. those that are trying to, you know, um, oppress people just to make it that much harder for them to do it in the tiniest of ways. That's resistance. And that is what we absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, and small acts of resistance, like, um, you know, a lot of Dutch people, I would say, argue participated in the resistance simply by um, maybe they suspected their neighbor was harboring a Jew in their house and they simply decided to ignore it mm-hmm. and not report it right. and pretend they didn't know anything about it. And, you know, the Jews who were saved ultimately um, benefited from tiny actions like that. Yes. <clears throat> you know, yeah. um, they all make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned that lesson, too. Yes. Yeah. And that's the part I think I found so inspirational is that it doesn't Mm. require some big sacrificial gesture always. It can. Yeah. And and in some instances it it has to, but for everyday people, there's things you can do. Like I'm a mom and the idea of doing anything that would put my daughter at risk terrifies me, (laughs) but I can do little little things. Of course. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just, one question about the, the violence you depicted in here. I, I don't think I've ever read and I've read a lot of World War II novels. And so yeah. I'm used to I'm used to hearing about that kind of, you know, this violence perpetrated by the Nazis. Yeah. There was something so your description of it is so cold and calculating. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you meant to do it, but the way you mm-hmm. describe all like the the massacre, the murder of Hendrick, um yeah. the the raid of Hani's par- uh, maybe I'm giving mm-hmm. I'm giving away too much, but sure, right. The absolute terror of those moments comes across so clear um and I found it so interesting how how did you write those moments because you write them so well and so graphically but not in a not in a bad way graphically yeah like you get the feeling of what it would have been like to be to be watching those things um yeah tell tell me about that yeah I mean I the you know, those parts were really difficult to write, as you can imagine, just because they're so heavy and they're so intense. Honestly, I, 
you know, the first thing I should say is there's so many more specifically well-documented violent incidents in Hani's story alone that are not even included in this book because oh. I couldn't put them all in there. And uh, because it would just be right. too brutal. <laughs> to right. read it. And I didn't, it's already a pretty long book. So, um, you know, I just, I honestly, I tried to, you know, this is based on a true story and mm -hmm. I tried to stick to the facts of what we know about not only Hani's life, but what we know about what happened in the Netherlands mm -hmm. during World War II. And um, for the most part, the the scenes I think that are the most kind of intense are the ones where I really had the most documentation and could simply mm -hmm. tell the story as it happened. I'm not gonna, no spoilers, but there's a scene with Truce oh. trying to help a group of children. Yeah, I couldn't, I could barely get through this section. <laughs> I know, and I have a kid too. And it was like writing that, I've heard from a couple of readers that like that scene in particular was mm -hmm. so harrowing that they, you yeah. know, they yeah. they wondered, they were sort of like, it, in a way, I hope this is true. In a way, I hope it's not because I wouldn't want somebody to invent this. And mm -hmm. I, it's not invented. It's all true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really just tried to show that like, you know, Truce and Hani and these characters who are in the book, they're mm -hmm. just normal people like you and me right. who do not mm -hmm. live in a day-to-day -day world of violence until this stuff starts happening. And I tried to, I figured as shocked as, I was was as shocked as they would be, which is yeah. to say extremely shocked. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I also felt like it would be doing a disservice to try to soften it in any way because yeah. these things really happened, you know, and um, it's yeah, it was tough. I actually had moments where I when I was writing this book where um, I would put on uh, in the background this sounds so funny, but it's really true. I would put on Toy Story, the Pixar <laughs> movie, in the background just to look at with no sound, just mm -hmm. to remind me that, like, oh, good things are possible. Yeah. Like, you know, yes. there's, like, mm -hmm. children and toys and cuteness and there's Randy love. Newman. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. it just helped me kind of stay afloat, you know, as yes. I did it. Yeah. 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 I have to say, and I don't want to get too into it because I, I don't yeah. like, I don't want to glorify the violence, but I thought you did yeah. such a good job of communicating how shocking and yeah. how much a person in that situation would have absolutely no idea how to react appropriately. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it, it was, it's very well done and very it's, visceral thank um, and you. hard to read. Yeah. It's hard to read. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I also think it was important because the question of why Hani Shaft is willing to go to the lengths she does right. in her resistance work is directly related to what she sees and sees all around her in terms right. of the violence that's being perpetrated, you know, against yes. her, essentially, her country. Yeah. 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 Her her change, the the scene of her getting dressed up and and putting mm -hmm. on trying to look as fancy as she can. And she yeah. she feels like she's putting on armor. Like yeah. she's going into battle and that's how she's doing it. She's arming mm -hmm. herself with her her femininity and and yeah. that's what's going to get the job done. I just, I was like, I was, I was just like air punch <laughs> fist, air punching. Yeah. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> go girl. It, yeah. yeah. Cause you, it, it does feel like that. And I just, yeah. I love, I love her character so much. I don't want to talk about the end because it's just, again, the way you write about how her story ends is just, 
and that and I amazing yeah Yeah. and that's all true by the way I mean that no that's the part that just is like I know how (laughs) that and that's what I mean when I heard her story and the more Mm -hmm. I learned about it I was like how is there not like a Steven Spielberg movie about this woman you know because it's it's like you couldn't write it any more Mm -hmm. dramatically than it really happened Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it is the the idea of what would you do to hold on to your integrity through these yeah. kinds of events. That question is, I don't even know. I finished it and I don't, I still don't know how I would answer that question. I don't know. And I hope yeah. I never have to find out. Yeah, um, me too. Same, but, same. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it is jaw dropping how, mm. how brave she is. And oh, how, yeah. yeah. How brave she was. So one last question I have for you. I just loved all of the different Dutch fra- sayings, the phrases <laughs> yeah. that they have. There are so many good ones. I can't pronounce yeah. any of them. Me of- either. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, honestly, the best one is, of course, stay human. Um, oh, I don't yeah. know how to say it in Dutch. How do you say it in Dutch? Do you know? I think you say sort of belief mindset like I'm terrible I don't I speak Dutch you could have said anything it. yeah exactly you could have said anything and I would have been like oh okay yeah um, and it yeah. means stay human yeah you know yeah and that was the that was like a little a little phrase they used in the family of Truce and Freddie Overstegen mm-hmm. because her mother had been an activist on behalf of refugees for decades I loved and it her was character some, I know me too Thank I you. want a whole book just about yes them. me too um, <laughs> yeah but she had been doing this work and knew how grinding it was and how mm-hmm. it could make you really bitter and um harsh and it was important to every once in a while take a step back and say I'm, we're doing this on behalf of staying human, on trying right. to be humane as much as possible while doing this really intense work. Yeah. Um, so that was really like a key one for me. And then I think another one that I really loved um, is this phrase, and I'm not going to say it in Dutch because I'll just butcher it, <laughs> but um, the bullet is through the church. Oh, and that one too. Yep. That one, and that one is basically like the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the the essentially it's a phrase that yeah. means if we've gotten to the point where soldiers are shooting at churches, it's like anything goes. Right. You know, yep. it's uh like a no holds barred. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm trying and to think so, what would how would we say that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah. don't know. I think it's just like, you know, I don't know, like I don't know what you'd say, but buckle up, uh, buckle <laughs> up. Yeah. And there's a moment when Hani has to really ask herself, like, am I actually going to do this stuff? Yeah. You know, am I actually going to get a gun? And am I, am I actually going to yeah. not only put myself in these situations, but, you know, put other people in these situations. Right. Uh, and that, that phrase is something that kind of helps her realize like, oh yeah, it's time. Like yeah, I didn't, yeah. Like we didn't start this, but exactly. we're we're gonna do what we can to exactly to get yeah to get rid of it. I love that one, and I also like the one. Um, I think I think it might. I'm trying to think who says it. Um, it's that where despair ends, tactics oh. begin. I like yeah. that one too. Yeah, it's like that absolutely. feeling of like when you've reached when you've reached the end of it, and you there's n- there's no more there's no more emotion that you can put into it. It's just kind exactly. of like all right, all right let's do it. Let's figure it yeah. out. There's no more. We have a job to yep. do now. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was important for people in the resistance. And I'm sure it's been important around the world historically for people in this, these situations yeah. where you can't, you can't really handle any more emotional mm-hmm. drama yourself. Yes. And you just kind of have to turn that into something useful. 
yeah. you know, and that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. You're what did you have a favorite other the, other than the one you said, or is another one? I do love the bullet is through the door. I loved that one when I read it. Yeah. I thought, oh, that's such a good. <laughs> yeah. I think I really, in the end, just cling to stay human because mm-hmm. I think it's so even in our day to day now mm-hmm. in 2023, it's, um, you know, as we like might, you know, fight uh, people who have different ideas than we do and different, you know, yeah. approaches. It's important. It is important, I think, to remember our common shared humanity. Yes. Um, that's the only way we're going to move forward, you yeah. know, and um and I will say also, just because I feel like we've talked about so much of the dark stuff of this book, but there is some light in it in the sense mm-hmm. that. I think all of these people really do manage to stay human and to stay loving people and Mm -hmm. really love and friendship and family are really the themes of this book, you know, just as much as, you know, uh, the dangers of fascism or whatever. (laughs) And I think that's why, like at the beginning, I said, I I don't know that I've ever read a world historical fiction, World War II novel with it that with ha- that has so much darkness and and violence mm. and just from that history but it's uplifting and you leave oh, it feeling God. you d- I left it feeling empowered of oh good like yeah like okay yeah. and and I Hani has been in my head since I finished the book Aww. I I think several times throughout the day when I'm driving my car when I'm when Aww. I'm just about you know that stay human it does it yeah. clicks and you and you're just like yeah every little thing you can do that is sharing love and compassion with another person is an exactly. act of resistance. And I think that exactly. was her. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's beautiful. That's I her loved message. It. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really, that means a lot to me. I, Cause I feel the same way, you know, mm-hmm. after seven years of working on this book, I'm not tired of the story or of her or any of the people in it. And, you know, I'm very, very humbled and honored to say that the, you know, I spoke with some of the descendants of the real people yeah. of this book for doing the research for the book, and they've all read the book now, and they all really love it. And that, honestly, yeah. if if nobody else ever reads it, that's okay with me because yeah. they like the way they feel like it's accurate mm-hmm. and a good portrayal of their ancestors who did this amazing stuff. Wow. So, um, you know, it's like helpful to remember they're real people. If yes. they can do it, we can too. I just keep, I'm, I'm, I'm like casting the movie characters in my yeah. head as I'm reading the, but honestly, I'm like, how yeah. is this, how has this not, how I have know. we not had a movie about this or a series well, or there's, something? There's some, there is some talk. I can't say much, but there Ooh. is some stuff potentially in the works. So, you know, so stay tuned. Yeah. Okay. Well, well if you, if you need me to talk to anybody and, and <laughs> tell them that it's a great idea, just give them my email. <laughs> I will. Absolutely. I just appreciate you and all the booksellers because I have worked in bookstores too myself and grew up in a bookstore basically. And I, you guys are the ones who really get these books into the hands of people who don't know the story. And I just can't thank you enough for, you know, what you're doing, what you're doing. And, and it means a lot. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, I love it. And and when I come across a book like this, it's like, that's so I just, yeah, I get so excited. So thank you Aww. so much for taking time to talk with me. And my pleasure. Yeah, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. Great. Well, yeah. thank you. And yeah, get in touch anytime. If you're ever in yeah. Boulder, let's have a beer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Fuzzy. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. From the people who sell you actual books in a real-life indie bookshop comes a podcast all about books and the love of reading. So subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Aaron's Books.